I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in our series, The Death of Christian Art. God is an artist. His art is sometimes uplifting, sometimes upsetting. How do we, as his people, put into practice the spiritual discipline of art appreciation? We are now three, week three in a four-part series called The Death of Christian Art. Now, week one, as a recap, was about the incredible, undeniable infamous placed on art by, and aesthetics by God and the authors of the Bible, and then carried on throughout church history until the Protestant reformers detached from both the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox expressions of church. And among a great many changes that followed, there came a kind of de-emphasizing and in some cases an outright rejection of art and aesthetics in, and visuals and symbols and elaborate pageantry and liturgical practices that Protestants associated with Catholicism. So in their minds, it's all bad, it's all got to go. And we, as a church within the Protestant Christian tradition, especially in the West, especially in America, we are experiencing the ongoing effects of that history in a lot of ways, including its effects on how we perceive and understand art. But I pointed out from the Bible that art, all kinds of art really, is deeply important to God and how he communicates to his people, relates to them, comes near to them, teaches them, and in how we hear from God, worship God, understand God. In fact, things like detailed symbology and worship and elaborate rituals and tradition, even things like ornate robes and outfits, those were all God's idea. All throughout the Bible, God insists on art. But what kind of art does God create and commission and command? Through what kind of art can we experience God? Contemporary American Protestant Christian culture would probably tell you through Christian art, And by that, one might mean art and entertainment that depicts, sings about, showcases explicitly Christian things, and and always with kind of an uplifting, redemptive edge. Worship songs, uh, TV shows like The Chosen, or movies like Fireproof, I guess, I don't know, that kind of thing. And don't get me wrong, I'm not making fun, honestly. Worship songs can be wonderful. Big believer in them, listen to them all the time, just played some. Uh, People, I haven't seen The Chosen, people love that thing. I got a guy in my D&D group that tells me he cries through every episode. Um, Of course, of course those scenes can serve a great purpose. But what if a work of art isn't explicitly Christian the way we understand that term? What if it isn't overtly uplifting at all? And what if it's even vulgar or upsetting or obscene? Because a lot of the Bible, which is, again, the inspired, authoritative word of God, yes, but also the greatest feat of literary artistry and history is often very upsetting. So last week, I made that case from the Bible by simply presenting certain passages from the text. And then later that week, uh, when we met as a staff, some of the other leaders were telling me that they'd heard stories about uh, people being disturbed or upset or offended by the teaching, particularly those passages from the scriptures. And I don't mean to make light of that at all. That's an important thing to note. Um, and it's one important reason that we have Van City communities uh, and things like the practices to kind of facilitate that conversation and a space to debrief. But in that particular teaching, last week, you can go back and listen to the podcast, you're like, what the heck did I miss? Um, 
I actually didn't really get into my thoughts about the real implications of it all uh, or where exactly to follow the logic and all that stuff. I mostly um, cited some stories and poems and parables from the scriptures. I read a few of them. Some I only described because the actual text is more upsetting. And in some cases, there were some who were disturbed by the descriptions of the texts that were themselves more graphic. Now, this is actually fascinating to me because... Um, someone described it as something that could have been overwhelming. So I went back and looked. Uh, less than three minutes were spent describing the violent depictions of history in the scriptures. Two minutes on the Bible's use of violent, horrific imagery in poems, parables, and visions um, to warn against sin and to promise salvation. Two minutes on strong, profane language in the Bible, a minute and a half on despair and hopelessness, Two minutes on graphic depictions of erotic love. I didn't read any of those passages. I just talked about them conceptually. Two minutes on symbolism and prophetic performance art, particularly in Ezekiel. And finally, a little under five minutes on the hidden numerical symbolism in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, arguably the least offensive uh, thing in the bunch. So all in all, it's a bit over 15 minutes um, of the 40-minute sermon, just reading through Bible stuff and 10 or less of those minutes focusing on the upsetting stuff. Um, someone said maybe the tone was too lighthearted, not serious or sensitive enough to handle some of those topics in question, which I completely understand. Um, but it also made me think, you know, I, I would point out with respect and humility, tone is also an aesthetic decision. In this case, on my part, not God's, obviously. Um, and tone, in, in, in this case, aesthetically, is obviously subjective, open to interpretation. I made, a, in this case, a conscious kind of choice to approach that particular 15 minutes, not with frivolity, at least not intentionally at all. If it was received as such, that's um, not at all what I intended. But with a kind of uh, diplomatic lightness, you know, or even a kind of gallows humor in order to ferry us toward a thoughtful conclusion rather than ending with some kind of somber, defeated one. And there are, I would argue, examples of that kind of teaching technique in the scriptures as well, as well, you know, like levity with serious topics or even dark comedy with upsetting, upsetting com content. Now, of course, one might not like such an aesthetic decision. That's absolutely fine. And I didn't, I didn't believe me, mastermind this whole thing just to make some point right now. But it does bring us to this interesting consideration and please believe me when I say this isn't meant to belittle anyone or even call anyone out because it makes a tremendous amount of sense. Ten minutes with just a small selection of some of the Bible's more disturbing artistic decisions can be enough to offend us, and understandably so. And that's the point. Many of these passages, I think, should offend us as these are aesthetic decisions on behalf of God and the biblical authors. Now, of course, we all have different tolerances for this kind of thing, and that's also fine to be expected. But as disciples of Jesus, these are our scriptures. Um, art is not always meant to inspire and encourage us. It can also confront us and provoke us and offend us. And I would argue that the best art usually does and thus boasts the power to change us. The kind of art that generates conversation and dialogue and disagreement, even outrage, is typically more likely to work some change in the audience than the kind of thing that does none of the above. 
Songwriter Nick Cave once argued, challenging music by its very nature alienates some fans whilst inspiring others. But without that dissonance, there's no conversation, there's no risk, there are no tears, and there are no smiles, and nobody is moved and nobody is affected. In the end, to challenge our fans is to love them even if it means losing them. And again, please hear me when I say it's not just the Bible's honest depiction of history. Those are, there's enough there to, to really upset us. It's also poems and parables and analogies and symbols. These are purely creative decisions on the part of God and the human authors of Scripture that, in many cases, don't make much practical sense at all. What I mean by that is that it makes way more practical sense for Jesus to explain the literal meaning of communion rather than starting with, and I quote, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. It, wakes, it makes way more practical sense for God to say, hey, Ezekiel, uh, it seems like all hope is lost, but listen, I'm going to bring Israel out of exile. Instead, God gives him this terrifying vision of piles of decayed corpses that graphically lurch back to life before his very eyes. God knew then and knows now that these things will likely upset some of our sensibilities. Jesus knew that his cannibalism metaphor would alienate, in this case, most of his audience. He said so. But it's still all there. And it's still upsetting and alienating us today. Not just some among us, me included. I'm a lifelong student of the scriptures. I find things in the Bible to be offended by all the time. And these are artistic decisions, not just practical ones. In some cases, they make no practical sense at all. Clearly, God believes there is value and importance in that kind of art. This is not, you know, Josh's weird jump. It's not like some kind of weird theological gymnastics. It's just evident from an ordinary reading of the scriptures because it's all there. And we have to learn to deal with that together as a family. Now, to be offended um, in uh, like our unique kind of cultural moment lends one to kind of social credibility. To be offended is to have a kind of upper hand socially. The one who finds new ways to be offended or most offended wins. I'm talking about like it's not here, but social media landscape world, all that. Um, and I'm not saying there's never any validity to offense. Of course there is. I get offended all the time. I get offended by art or by culture or people. You, you name it. It's a normal part of the human experience. But my point is that God knows his art will sometimes offend. In some cases, he says so. And he deems it worthwhile and even necessary for his communicative purposes. We can excuse ourselves from the room but then you won't hear what God has to say. God chooses these methods and mediums to speak to us, to reveal himself to us, to form us, and he expects us to meet him in it. Now, we can do that, and we should, because we are working to cultivate the spiritual discipline of art appreciation. That's why I began in the scriptures, uh, because we can't begin to wrap our minds around the incredible reality of God's artistry that it encompasses both the beautiful and the profane until we attempt to appreciate his artistry revealed in the scriptures across that entire spectrum, the parts we like and the parts that make us recoil, quite frankly. 
And I'm not saying, oh, unless you sit through a monologue about all the Bible's horrific prose without batting an eye, then you'll never learn anything. You'll never grow. Not at all. But it could be a kind of entry point or maybe even a crossroads to consider ideas we've yet to consider about God as an artist and the art of the scriptures. So we could stop up our ears and say, oh, gross, too much, I'm out. Or we can remove ourselves from the conversation and from the opportunity to grow in the spiritual discipline of art appreciation. But if we do that, then we run the risk of persisting in a terrible spiritual deficit. Um, I, I argue in this new book that I wrote that, that to dishonor art is to dishonor God. I believe that, quite frankly. Or... We can take a deep breath, and we can admit the challenge, and we can take a step forward together as a community, talking and discussing, debate, dialogue, all of that together. So if you're still with me, I want to spend these last two Sundays in the series talking about how we put this into practice and the great benefit that it can have for our spiritual formation. Now, as we go, if this kind of shakes loose some questions in you, two things to remember. Again, I wrote a whole book on it. I spent years working on this thing. It wasn't in a vacuum. I had other pastors and friends read it and give feedback before it was published. It was my thesis project in seminary. It was overseen by a couple professors. So if you want to go deeper, that's there for you. We, we ran out of copies last week, but we have more tonight. Um, we sell them at print cost. This isn't a commercial. I don't make a penny. It's there to be of use if you are so inclined or if you know someone for whom it could possibly be helpful. And then secondly, next week during the final teachings, we're going to have a time of Q&A and see how that goes. Um, so <laughs> you can submit your questions now on, uh, anonymously if you like. Anytime before next week at vancity.church slash questions. There's just a big empty box that says you got a question about the series write whatever on there. You can actually also upvote other questions that you think could be of use to others. Um, so vancity.church slash questions if you're so inclined. Now, again, before we get into tonight's teaching, I just want to say thank you guys uh, for hanging in there and bearing with me. I understand um, that this can be heavy stuff uh, or even just new information. Um, and sadly, a lot of it is often considered outside the realm of appropriate church conversation. And I say sadly because I believe personally that that's how we got into this kind of mess, this, the mess that is the terrible deficit of art appreciation in so many Christians and in so many traditions of the Jesus movement in the West in particular. Because if God wants to speak to us and convict us and come near to us in and through art, then that is a very big problem. A spiritual deficit of art appreciation it can be a very big problem. So I'm asking you guys, humbly, if you would please stay with me, hear me out, and let's get into practice these last two weeks. Okay, the first thing we need to ask to go forward is, what is Christian art, really? This is a true story. I'm not making this up. As I was writing this teaching, when I came to this part, I wrote that sentence, what is Christian art, question mark, and then my phone went beside me, um, I got a text from a friend wanting to connect me with someone that he knew. I'm sure you've got these messages before. Can I connect you with my friend? And then the friend does like a three-person text message instead of just sending you the number. So it's like, are we supposed to have a conversation with you in the thread? I don't understand. Anyway, <laughs> this friend who texted me is an author. He works firmly within the Christian industry and academy. He's a professor. He's well-known. It's not. He's not at all a super edgy, controversial figure or some kind of like 
um, pessimistic, you know, cynical guy whatsoever. And he said, I say that because he said this. This is a quote. I didn't ask him if I could do this. He said, (laughs) and I quote, random question. My buddy is a super talented artist and is working on some writing. Not the typical lame Christian stuff, but like actually creative and forward thinking. Again, this is a Christian author, Christian professor, the whole thing. Now, I know this guy that texts me. He knows me. We're both Christians. He knows I'm a pastor. And yet, he felt the need to clarify, not the typical lame Christian stuff, actually creative. And I chuckled to myself and thought, oh, that's a relief. (laughs) Is Christian art lame? My guess is that if you ask a decent sample size of Christians and or non-Christians, a lot of them would say yes. But why is that? Maybe some would say that, quote-unquote, Christian art is often sanitized to the point of dorkiness, or that it comes off as schmaltzy with its sentimentality, or that it can emphasize heartwarming positivity to the point of sacrificing any meaningful realism whatsoever. Is that the kind of art that God prefers? If so, he has not bothered following his own rules at all. The French Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain wrote in his book, Art and Scholasticism, the definition of Christian art is to be found in its subject and in its spirit. Everything, sacred and profane, belongs to it. God does not ask for religious art or Catholic art. The art he wants for himself is art with all its teeth. And we saw last week, God is definitely not preoccupied with sanitizing the kind of art that he creates and commissions, and he certainly doesn't censor himself or fuss with whether or not we'll be offended by it. Essentially, the exact opposite of modern Christian entertainment, or what the industry likes to call faith-based media. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you can't honor God with or enjoy or learn from stereotypically Christian art and entertainment. Sure you can. I do all the time, unapologetically. But does Christian art only come in one particular shape and size? As we've seen from the Bible, the answer is obviously no. So what makes any given work of art Christian? Uh, a bishop, Robert Barron, said of one of my favorite writers, Flannery O'Connor, that she, and I quote, gave glory to God primarily in the act of fashioning a story well. So people would say to her, if you're Catholic and you want to write on Catholic themes, why aren't you writing about priests and nuns and monasteries? And she would say, well, you could, but a properly crafted story, that will give glory to God in itself. C.S. Lewis, you heard of this guy? He's, he's really on to something. He's got a bright future. Uh, he, he argued, and again, I quote, the rules for writing a good passion play, it's a story about Jesus, or a good devotional lyric, in other words, a worship song, the rules are simply the rules for writing tragedy or lyric in general, meaning Christian art doesn't have specifically unique Christian rules. So thus, I would argue in the technical sense, there's really no such thing as Christian art. God made art up as a concept, as a reality, anything that belongs to that term only exists because God is the first and best artist and because the creator God made us in his image and some of whom to become creatives ourselves or artists. So even if you find no aesthetic value in a given work of art personally, or even if you find it ideologically misplaced or even morally reprehensible, the fact that a human being was wired by God for creativity, even if they use it against him, 
and can thus paint or write or compose or sing, well, then you can find the through line back to the creator. Now, sure, in the conversational sense, sure, I get why a term like Christian music exists and why we might use it. Sometimes it just makes sense conversationally. But does God only speak and communicate to us through the Bible's art or through specifically Christian art? Does he only approve of Christian art? Now, to answer that, let's interact with a few examples, again, beginning with the Bible. Now, at the outset of the teaching we read from Psalm 1, if you recall, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of the mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and, listen to this, who meditates on his law day and night. Now, when you read the law here, don't think only of like the elaborate rules in Leviticus and don't even think only of the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. The law is the author's way of referring to the Bible itself, to the Scriptures as a whole, and the author calls them meditation literature, who meditates on it day and night, meaning it is the kind of collection of writings designed to be read and reread and pondered and discussed, the kind of writing on which one meditates for a lifetime without resolving the beautiful intricacies of its depth and complexity. Uh, some of my friends as a birthday present pulled some money and gifted me this beautiful limited edition hardcover of Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Kyle, Nelson, are you in here? He's, yeah, you're a big fan, right? Yes, a big, very big fan. Um, just an amazing copy of this book, if you care about that. It's like kind of this beautiful binding, and it has these specially commissioned illustrations, the, the Rolls-Royce of the reading experience. Um, and as they had, it was imported from London. It's an amazing way, honestly, to experience what many literary figures consider to be one of the greatest novels of all time. So uh, it took me till January to finally sit down with this nice copy of it, and I began reading it slowly at the beginning of the year, um, and stopping to sort of reread certain passages. And I, I take out a notebook and copy certain quotes um, and, and chat, you know, like entire paragraphs in a notebook as I go. And I stop to really savor these illustrations. Meanwhile, as I'm reading this thing this way, just in January, my wife Abby read five novels in a memoir, just grinding through books, like, boom, done, boom, give me another one, done. She was mad at me over the weekend. You didn't bring me a book home. I got nothing to read. What am I supposed to do? Now, you can read the Bible both ways. You can read the Bible the way one might read another kind of book, going through the story, taking it in, in the moment, actually reading the whole thing to get from the beginning of the story to the end of the story, which, by the way, reading the whole thing, if you're a Christian, incredibly important. Can't stress that enough. Um, you can read it that way. You can read it from cover to cover. It's designed as one literary unit of narrative, even though it's a collection of writings. Um, so you can read it like my wife reads a thriller or a murder mystery, and you should. But you can also go slow or go backward or go one line at a time or drink it in and turning over in your imagination, stopping to take notes or reread a passage or weigh it against something that happened earlier. In other words, meditation literature. Now, with that in mind, I want to show you something. Turn over to Psalm 23, arguably the most beloved psalm, one of the most beautiful poems ever written. Psalm 23, as many of you well know, goes like this. Yahweh is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. 
And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Man, that thing is amazing. Each line deserves deep reflection. You can make any given phrase a recurring prayer for years of your life. A lifetime of study would not unpack the riches of this one poem. I've been hearing this poem all my life, and I feel like just reading it just then, it spoke to me in a new way. Now, turn to the right to Psalm 137. Psalm 137, beginning in verse 1, we read, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, when the Edomites did, or what the Edomites did on that day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. And it's over. Now, this isn't some candid document of historical events. It's a poem, and it's sinful. It's a violent fantasy tinged with hatred and vengeance. Yes, it's an honest reflection of the lyricist's brokenness and anger and exile, but it isn't good. And it's also meditation literature. It doesn't teach us the same way Psalm 23 does, which kind of wears its goodness and virtue on its sleeve and continues to speak in all kinds of new, beautiful, redemptive ways. This one teaches us in the context of the whole story about the human condition, about evil, and about the circular nature of violence. But the author doesn't just write all that down. There's no footnote that says, by the way, this sounds rough, but here's what it means. These are things we learn upon study. Yeah, of course, you can get a commentary and learn a lot about why that's in there. But you also learn upon deep reflection, reading that horrible poem again and again and again by reading it the way it was designed to be read as meditation literature. But watch this, it gets weirder. Here's a poem with both things. Turn just a page or two to the right to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, for the director of music of David, verse one, you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, 
your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created me, my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. Incredible. So beautiful. And then keep reading. There's an abrupt change. Verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those? Who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I can find a couple of offensive things uh, in, the, in the author right here from the poem. What a mess. Does Jesus teach his disciples to love or to hate their enemies? love, to love them. And yet, here is a worship song about hating enemies, about wanting them dead. And what's even more complicated, it comes abruptly after gorgeous stanzas of intimate affection for and vulnerability before God. It's almost like, almost like human beings are a mess, a mixed bag, both capable of true worship and the darkness of heart that breeds violence. But God, who's the co-author didn't edit the poem. He could have at least cut out that last line in Psalm 137 about the infants because we know for sure that that expresses an idea that God finds absolutely abhorrent. But God doesn't censor it. There it is. And we are meant to read it and, and actually reread it and reflect on it and learn from it, to be spiritually formed by it. So, are you saying that one can be spiritually formed by art that depicts evil or hatred or even shocking, despicable violence? Not just Josh's weird opinion. This is the text. This is the scriptures. And it's not just the art in the Bible that's important and potentially formative for disciples of Jesus. We learn from the scriptures and we take our understanding of what art is and what it's meant to do, and we apply it to the world of art and entertainment beyond the scriptures. So look at this. Here is a painting by uh, Frank Dixie. It's called The Two Crowns. It depicts a medieval prince. He's returning triumphant from battle. He's got a sword at his hip and a spear over his shoulder. He's bejeweled crown on his head, and he's leading soldiers as women celebrate his arrival into the city. But then, as he enters, his gaze is caught by the crucified Jesus, who also wears a crown and who was also raised victorious, a king, but not in military triumph, but in dying for his enemies. And the prince's face seems struck and troubled. It is a striking, haunting scene with a meaning that you could argue is kind of thinly veiled, I'm assuming by design. We can infer from this work a profound spiritual message. 
but also one that's pretty strikingly Christian. Jesus is in the painting, so that, that's a dead giveaway, and it has been interpreted to depict what I've described it to depict by a great many interpreters for more than 100 years now. So what if a given piece isn't as forthcomingly Christian in the stereotypical sense? I actually asked at the beginning of the series all, each of our staff to choose a piece to recommend as supplemental examples of how one practices the spiritual discipline of art appreciation. Their choices, if you want to know, have been right there on the website on the teaching series page. Um, Levi, who's up here, right here singing worship just a few minutes ago, he selected this. It's a painting called AA72 by Polish painter Gisław Bajinski. Um, and Levi wrote of this piece, and I quote, this haunting painting by Polish surrealist Gisław Bajinski helps me to meditate on the way I carry the light of Jesus in a dark world. Sometimes chaos and death seem to tower over us, and we are left with a choice. Do we surrender to the darkness, allowing our light to be extinguished, or do we boldly carry the flame and continue on the narrow road? Now, what's interesting about this particular painting is that Bajinski, well, I looked it up, not a Christian, not religious at all, in fact, he says, isn't even sure what he thinks about God and whether or not God exists. Is Levi then wrong to read the piece this way? Meditating on the idea of carrying the light of Jesus in a dark world is obviously a worthwhile, worthwhile thing for a disciple of Jesus to do, and this piece compelled Levi to do it. One more example uh, before we end. A few years ago on a Sunday night, we sang... Uh, worship song during the gathering. We do that every time. Uh, the gist of the lyrics, more or less, are this. It says, I sing praises to your name, praises to your name, the name higher than all names, all honor to your name, the name that's so much greater than all names. And then the chorus is, be lifted up, be lifted higher, be lifted up, be lifted higher. And it sounds like one might expect a church worship song to sound. I actually have a clip of it. There it is, gentle, melodic, major chords, harmonies. Sounds nice, actually. And, and I was singing. Uh, this is not to dunk on this song at all. I was right in the front, worshiping, not knocking this song at all. Later that same night, I got in my car to drive home in the rain and the dark, and I, uh, I, I honestly wasn't like feeling brooding or anything like that. I wasn't even emotional or reflective per se, um, but I put on a record that I think was just the last record I was listening to on my way to church, a record I've listened to dozens of times, and suddenly this strong re song really struck me. Um, again, really short lyrics are laying of hands, speaking in tongues, all invading properties, insipid entering entities. I command you to leave this body. The casting of cane, the expelling of seed, disinfecting our meat with the gnashing of teeth. I command you outside under my feet, the laying of hands and the speaking of tongues, all invading properties, excising all of you out of me, I command you to leave this body. Now, this doesn't sound like one might expect a worship song to sound. This is a clip of this as well. It's dissonant jangling, chaotic, 
Burrs, you like that? This is Abby hates this band more than any other band. Um, it's a song that's not intended for worship. It's actually written and sung by an atheist and a nihilist in a style deliberately off-putting, to say the least, and it uses biblical images satirically. But what do I care? These images mean something to me, so I take them seriously. And my heart, as I'm listening to this song, and it was loud in my car, because what other way do you listen to music in your car? Um, my heart started to speed up, and my jaw got tight, and I felt as if God was speaking to me through this song about my own sin and brokenness, and I was suddenly worshiping in my car. That refrain, I command you to leave this body. And I was moved, spiritually affected, much more by the song satirizing biblical imagery and written by an atheist than I was by the song written by Christians and intended for worship. And it works the other way, too. In his wonderful uh, new dialogue-driven memoir, Faith, Hope, and Carnage, which I highly recommend if you're interested in this kind of thing. Nick Cave reveals to his journalist friend that the song his friend had interpreted as a quintessential love song um, had, it play, had, had it played at his wedding and everything. It was actually about something else entirely. I wanted to read this part to you guys. The journalist asks Nick Cave, a song like Breathless, for instance, seems to me to exalt the luminous beauty of the everyday. Is that not a wondrous subject in and of itself? And Nick Cave says, yes, but Breathless is, in fact, an explicitly religious song. It is a love song to Jesus. The journalist says, no. <laughs> it's one of the songs we played at our wedding. I never took it for a God song. Nick Cave says, well, that's what's known as Jesus smuggling, and it worked. <laughs> so... Should Nick Cave have been clearer? Is it wrong to hear that song as a love song? Or did he make some kind of mistake by not having it written in such a way that it could easily be interpreted by anyone as a song about Jesus? Um, I'm sorry to do this to you guys, but I'm actually going to read you one thing from my book because it was too painful to try to rewrite. Here it is. I argue art is complicated in that it can depict something that is not lovely or admirable to communicate something that is. Art can represent something that is not lovely nor admirable with intentions that are not lovely nor admirable and yet evoke in its audience a reaction that is. Next week, I'm going to suggest some specific practices and pieces for beginners and seasoned art enthusiasts alike, and we'll attempt to answer questions if you guys send those in. But tonight, consider this. The key, I would argue, is relatively simple. And it is to invite God into your experience of art. Now, of course, God is always with you whether you invite him in or not. But what I mean by that is a kind of conscious awareness of God's presence as we experience and interpret and process art and entertainment. I think about Jesus when I hear songs. Like I said, story in my car, it's, I can't help it. I pray during movies, I, you know, the bright, shiny ones and the grimy, upsetting ones. And by that, I don't mean that I suddenly stop and bow and close my eyes, I've missed the movie. I just mean that I'm <laughs> dialoguing with God in my heart and my mind as I'm attempting to do in all of life, you know, just as I think of Jesus and pray through psalms and parables and scriptures and up here talking to you guys or during worship. Now, I know some of you, you need no convincing of the value of art and entertainment, but I would ask, are you learning to receive all of it in the presence of God? 
interpreted through the lens of your discipleship and applied to the life of your Christianity. I'm not saying, you know, suck the social enthusiasm out of a friend gathering by ordering everyone to get serious after a night at the movies and insist everyone get out their Bibles for a debrief. I'm saying allow the natural enthusiasm that many of you already have to discuss movies or argue about novels or share new music. Allow that to exist alongside and braid it into your prayerful processing of all of it. As with all of life, that is the goal as a disciple of Jesus, to be with Jesus, including when you receive, understand, interpret art and entertainment. I remember um, I thought of this particular story as well. Coming home one evening in 2019 after having been to the movies to see a film called uh, Honey Boy, written by Shia LaBeouf. Uh, and I'd been alone in the theater. That's how you know it's going to be good. It's a blessing from God. And then I, uh, I came home, and my wife, Abby, asked me, how was it? And then I talked to her about all the stuff you talk about with movies, about screenwriting and acting and the funny parts or the score, or the cinematography, all that stuff. But then I told her that, like, oh, there's, you know, there's a long stretch where I'm crying in the theater, feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit over my life as a father. It's all part of the spiritual discipline of art appreciation. So maybe you don't need any convincing to make room for art and entertainment in the first place, but are you bringing all of it under the lordship of Jesus? Because when you do, in my experience, you might be surprised to find that God speaks to you through art that maybe doesn't fit the stereotypically Christian bill, but you also might find, as I have, that there are times when the Spirit says, hey, this isn't wise for you. More on that next week. Our experience of art should be worked out, exercising active discernment, it's basic common sense, but that's faulty, so also inviting the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's crucial, but we're also not so great at receiving that sometimes. So finally, within the accountability of community, with other disciples of Jesus who know us and will call us up to faithful obedience. Because art is so complex and so subjective, that process will likely look different for each of us. But there are others of you in the room that don't count themselves as cinephiles or, or readers of the great American novel. And I'm not picking on you or suggesting you're somehow inferior in any way. You're not. But ask yourself this. What would it look like to push yourself toward art in order to experience it in God's presence? Whatever kind seems most accessible to your personality or season of life or your tastes, what would it be like to drive down to the Portland Art Museum with your community or join a friend at the movies or ask for a book recommendation with the express purpose of meeting God in the experience and asking him to speak through it and to enrich your capacity to know him, the great artist, through art. The spiritual discipline of art appreciation is, like all of the spiritual disciplines, disciplines a means to an end, and the end is God. To honor art is to honor God the one who made it up. So let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to do so. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.